Open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We'll look at that passage that we've already read this morning. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 17. And we will go through chapter 4 verse 1. And while I was preparing, I was, I was trying to remember a quote that I had heard once uh, in school. And uh, it was this one from Oscar Wilde. He said, if a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing well. If it is worth having, it is worth waiting for. If it is worth attaining, it is worth fighting for. If it is worth experiencing, it is worth putting aside time for. And when we think about life, there is much waiting in life. Whether it's waiting for a spouse, waiting for children, waiting for that call back from that potential employer, or in Lake Charles, waiting on I-10 or 210. There's a lot of waiting in life. But we endure that waiting. We persevere because there is something at the end of that waiting that's worth the wait. Even in the waiting, though, we are still active in our pursuit of whatever it is that we're waiting for. If it is that job, we're searching for job postings. We're building our resume, putting that together. We're applying for the job. We're hopefully getting an interview for that job. If it's a spouse, our antennas are up, single people, as we're going about life, spending time with friends, possibly going out on a date, but we're actively in pursuit of whatever it is that we're waiting for. The Christian life is no different. A few years ago, Natalie and I uh, went skiing. It was our five-year anniversary. Uh, I had never been before. But those of you who already know my deep love for the mountains understand how excited I was to be able to go on this trip. Uh, Growing up, I had always heard my friends talk about how much fun skiing was, Natalie's family talking about how much fun it was, and so I was really excited about it. But I did have some fear because this whole trip was planned around us skiing, and my wife uh, was pretty transparent in vocalizing her, how should I put this, her low expectations of my skiing ability. And I trust my loving and otherwise supportive wife. So I was a little worried about, am I going to go on this trip? We're going to spend this money, go to the mountains. I'm going to get up on the mountain on these skis and I'm going to hate it. What else am I going to do the other days that we're there? Because everybody's going to be doing this. And so I prepared. I did a lot of preparation. So my preparation looked like me having multiple conversations with my father-in-law about the proper form and then practicing that form in my living room, hopping back and forth with the knees, you know, not working on the pizza, but actually trying to learn how to ski properly. And then Natalie and I would do, we would torture our quads doing uh, wall sits because we're preparing for a week-long thing that we're, our muscles are not used to. Uh, even to the point of watching videos on YouTube over and over and over again, like literally walking onto the plane while I still have Wi-Fi, watching these instructional videos because I want to make sure that if I go on this trip, I'm going to enjoy it because I know it's worth it. 
And the thing is, even when we get there, there's still things. I, I don't get to taste the glory that is skiing because I have to learn how to put on my boots, to put on my skis. I have to learn how to get dressed to go skiing. I have to learn when I get out there how to fall down and get back up. I have to learn how to ride the lift and get off the lift. All of this in hopes that I'm going to have fun. The first day of skiing, I'm learning. I fall a lot. Natalie's actually, I'm a very good faller is what I am. And so going down the mountain, I think I went down twice that first day. And by noon, I was done. I mean, drenched in sweat. I'm a big guy. So it it takes a lot to get back up when you're getting on skis. And after two trips down the mountain, I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm tired. I'm done. I go back out the next day. Still on the green slopes, the easy ones. Making my way down. Make it to about two and was, at that point, I was like, man, I'm just now getting this, but I'm going to go ahead and call it a day because tomorrow's the day. Day three is the day that I'm going to go higher. I'm going to do maybe some blues. I'm going to enjoy tomorrow. But if I keep going today, I might quit because I'm tired. And sure enough, there was this moment on day three. I'm not going to make it more than what it should be, but there was this moment on day three where we got to ride, I got to ride multiple lifts, and we were in Breckenridge, going all the way up higher to where there's, there's, there's some more blues, difficult, more difficult um, runs, and I remember snow falling. And I'm standing there off of this lift, looking at this valley that's opened up from the mountainside, and I kept thinking to myself, this is why I prepared that was it. The Christian life is much like this. We endure a lot in this life, and we are waiting the whole time because we know that at the end of it, there's something worth waiting for. And this morning, as we go into this text in Philippians, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see an appeal from Paul to this church of what they should do while they are waiting. And then he's going to give them the reason for that appeal. And then he's going to finish this up with the basis for his appeal. He's going to explain to them why he's telling them to do this. So let's first look at that appeal in Philippians 3, verse 17. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The appeal here is for the church to first join together. This is continuing a theme that we've seen throughout the Philippian letter, where he he talks about striving side by side, being in one spirit, one mind. There's this idea of unity that this church had. And so what he's telling them is join together in imitating me. And at the same time, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that Paul has already set. It's an appeal. It's an exhortation to this church to, in essence, follow the leader. Now, what exactly are they following him in? Well, we've titled this series, Unshakable Joy. And that's what we've seen throughout this letter. See, when he says, follow me, imitate me, it gives us a good point to say, hey, let's take a step back from this text and let's look at what we've seen throughout this whole letter. 
He talks about the unshakable joy that is found in Christ alone. And he does so from the very beginning. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, he said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. They had opponents. It was their pleasure that, that God had given them to suffer for the sake of Christ. And Paul knew that, right? Paul is writing this letter from prison. And so he's able to encourage them from that position in his life to say, you can do it as well. And then he goes into chapter 2, and he gives them examples of what that looks like, starting first with Christ, who endured the humility of death, even death on a cross, and now has the name above all names. He endured for the joy that was set before him. In verse 14, based on that example of humility, he encouraged them to endure all things. And I remember this because when Blake taught this, it was a very difficult week to put this into practice. But he said, endure all things, whatever you do, without grumbling, without complaining. Because that is the means by which you will be light into the dark world. Nothing super spiritual there, right? Whatever you do, do it without grumbling. Do it without complaining. And if you do that, you will be a light into the world. He gave them another example in Epaphroditus in chapter 2, who he said nearly lost his life for the sake of the gospel. And then, something a little bit more recent for us as we've been studying this letter verse by verse, in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, Paul gives his personal testimony. He said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so when we get to our text this morning, what Paul is saying is, remember those examples that I have laid out for you. Imitate me. As I have considered all things as lost for the sake of Christ. Everything is rubbish. It is nothing compared to knowing Christ. Follow that example. Pursue that. Why does he encourage him, them in this way? We see the reason in verses 18 through 19. He says, For many... Of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. 
walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. The word for there, appreciate you, Joey, teaching us, coaching us up. That word for points us backwards. This is the reason for the previous statement. It's explaining why he has just said what he did. He says, imitate me because there are some. And then he goes off into this side discussion just briefly. And he says, hey, remember, these are people that apparently he had frequently discussed with this church. Multiple conversations. He says, and now, even while I'm telling you about them once again, I do so with tears. Now understand, Paul is a, he's a holy man, he's spiritual, but he's just a man, right? So he's not, he's not shedding tears necessarily on behalf of the lost at large. Like this no-name group of lost people. That's not what's happening here. What, more than likely what this is, is a group of people who have professed faith in Christ and have strayed away from the faith. This week we were going uh, with the youth, we discussed uh, perseverance in the faith. We were going through this series of what is salvation, and we were talking about how true people who have truly trusted in Christ will persevere until the end. And there was this, this analogy that Jesus used, this parable, where he talked about seeds falling on the ground. And many of you are going to remember that, right? What Paul is talking about right here are people who are growing among the thorns, and the thorns of the world choke them out. They spring up. They're growing. Once the seed is planted, they've professed faith in Christ. They're doing spiritual things. They look good from the outside. But the things of the world creep in and choke out their faith. That's who Paul is describing here. And he's doing so not out of anger, but with sorrow. Because these are people, as you see Paul write in his letters to the churches that he helped plant, he's very intimately involved in their lives. These, these are just people to us on a page, but for Paul, their faces, their names, these are people that he actually felt and touched and spoke with. And it's hurtful to him to know that these people have strayed away. And so he says, many... We've talked about them, Philippian church. They have strayed away. Now, it could be that these are the Judaizers. We're not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out this is because no one really knows. But we talked about the Judaizers last week in chapter 3. People, the, the Jewish people who have converted to Christianity, but they had that Jesus and philosophy when it came to religion that we talked about last week, where you couldn't just trust in Jesus, but you also had to add, have something else to go with that. It could be that because that's where Paul was, right? Paul has converted from this Jewish mentality to a true Christian faith where it is in Christ alone, faith alone. And he wants that so much for his brothers. You see that in the, his letter to the Roman church. He said, I, I would rather give it all up for them to know and trust in Christ alone. It could be the Judaizers. It could be a group of Gentiles that... That when this church movement began, remember, this is a small church and very early uh, in its age, in its growth. Maybe these are people that expressed faith early on and then have now strayed away. Either way, Paul is brokenhearted for them. 
And he reminds them about this group of people as the reason for his appeal to strive for holiness, to anchor their hope in Christ and in Christ alone. And he goes on to describe them in five different ways. First, he says that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is warning them that it matters. It matters who you, who you emulate. It matters who you follow. Because this group of people, no matter what they look like on the outside, they are enemies of God. And as we go into these, uh, these other descriptions, we understand why. The second description is, that, is, is one of their fate. He says their end is destruction. Now, this is in contrast to the fate of the true believer that we've seen in, in, in this letter in chapter 1. That God, who began a good work, would bring it to completion. That on the day of Christ, they would be found pure and blameless. Philippians 1.6, Philippians 1.10. This is opposite of that. Their end is destruction. To the Philippian church, he's revealing the destination that they would arrive should they choose to follow this group of people. That's where they're headed. Let me make it clear to you, Philippian church. Be aware. This is a warning. That's where they're headed. Their fate, their end, is destruction. The third description is one of their master. He says, their God is their belly. Now that does not mean that they just, it's about food. Although that, that is an easy way for us to, to be able to understand this. It's a little bit relevant for us where we just go wherever our stomach leads us. But what this is talking about is how they are compelled to move by whatever it is that satisfies themselves. These are a group of people who are so entrenched in the things of this world that whatever it is that they desire, that's what they go do. And so, by doing that, they are submitting themselves to their own personal desires as their master. Their God is their belly. It's their own desires. They have taken themselves and replaced themselves as God, rather than submitting themselves to the true King, Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, this is very relatable to us today. Because if we were honest with God, if we were honest with ourselves, we would be able to easily recognize, probably top of mind, the poor decisions that we've made this week to do the very same thing. Where we did not submit ourselves to Jesus. We did not submit ourselves to our true king. But we said, no, I'm going to do this this week. I'm going to follow my gut, my belly, my desire. This is in contrast to how we should live as submission to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth description that he gives is their glory. He says they glory in their shame. This is their identity. This is who they are. For those of us who find our identities in Christ, despite what our actions may sometimes communicate, this is a defining characteristic that separates us from a group of people like this and being believers, children of the kingdom. They glory in their shame. 
Their desires is what brings them delight. That's where they find their happiness. When they are pursuing the things that they want and they get it, that's what makes them feel good. That's their identity. The fifth description kind of sums up the third and the fourth. It talks about their mindset. And it said that their minds are set on earthly things. That they have disregarded the commands of God to pursue holiness and instead pursue the desires of their heart. Found in the things of this world. And the result of this is that they are enemies of God. This is very clear in Scripture. If you look at James chapter 4, James gives a warning about what that would look like, pursuing the things of this world. And he gives a description of those who do. In James 4, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then John, in his first letter, actually says specifically, don't do that. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So what should we do instead? In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The implications of this are pretty clear. I'm not going to make it overly complex. But I'll ask a series of questions. Much like we have done a a few weeks in a row where we're we're laying out questions for you to take home and, and ask yourselves and pray over. This would be a list of questions that I would ask myself. Who am I submitting to as my master? Who am I submitting to? Is it my own belly? Am I submitting to my personal desires or am I submitting to my King, Jesus Christ? The second question is what am I glorying in? What do I find glory in? Is it the things, the actions, the thoughts that bring us guilt and shame? What we're really saying here is am I, do I glory in my sin? Or do we find our glory in Christ alone? As Paul said in Colossians, is our life hidden in Him? And the third question is, who or what have we set our minds on? 
Are they the things of this world? Or are they the things above? If you are setting your mind on the things that are of this world, understand that this world will pass away. If you are setting your mind on the people, even in this room, because let's be honest, we have a tendency to replace God with people who we love and care about. So those of you who are married, be careful that you're not idolizing your spouse, that you are submitting to Christ, and that your mind is set on the things above. And husbands, bring your wife with you. Point her in that direction. It's not our, it's not our kids. Our kids are a gift to us. But our minds should not be set on our children. I understand as with one with a six-year-old boy at my house that there's a lot that goes on. And I just have one. Bless you. (laughs) But I have one. And constantly there's a lot of communication that has to go back and forth. How are we going to get him here? Who's going to pick him up? What are we going to do? How are we going to feed this kid? We're going to bathe him? What's bath night? Do we do it every two nights? I do it every two. I hope you don't. No judgment. But there's a lot that goes into that. But that's the details of the day-to-day. But big picture, my mind should be on leading that six-year-old boy into holiness, exposing him to the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so that my wife gets to participate in that with me because my responsibility is to lead them in holiness. Our minds have to be on the things above, not on the things of this world. In verses 20 through 21, he gives the basis for this appeal. Why can he tell them to do this? He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In contrast to those whose identity is found in the world and in their, their, shame, their shame and their guilt, Paul reminds the Philippians that they are not just Roman citizens, but they are heavenly citizens. This is something that they already have. Notice that. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven. So there's this aspect of their identity that they can claim today. But then there's also a future aspect, something that has not yet happened, something that is still yet to come. He says, we wait. We wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come from heaven. Church, this is who we are waiting for. This is the glory that we're waiting for. This is the thing that that propels us to endure all things. Regardless of our circumstances, we can have unshakable joy because we know one day Christ is coming. And that's where our minds should be. In the Christian life, we do not wait for a thing. We don't wait for a benefit. We don't wait for an event. We're waiting for a person. And when he comes, we will receive the promises that are laid out in Scripture. Including what we see here, the transformation of our humble, lowly bodies into our perfected, 
glorious bodies. A return to the way that we were created to be. That's what we long for. For Jesus Christ. And we know when he comes, that's what we get. And all this will be accomplished by the sovereign power that the Son has, that the Father has given to him to subject all things to himself. So what are you waiting for? What is your mind set on? Single people, if it's a spouse, let me warn you, you will be disappointed. If that is your ultimate hope, you will be disappointed because that wife or that husband cannot fulfill everything that you need in your life. They are sinners just like you. They will let you down. If it's a job, I've been laid off. Those things come and go. That can't be your future glory. That can't be your hope. If that's where your identity is found, it can be gone tomorrow. I don't care how good you are at your job. Some personal testimony. This week, as I've been preparing, studying, having to be honest with myself, I mean, it's very difficult to get up here in front of you and, and proclaim something that I don't myself believe or have not yet walked through. But I had to ask myself these questions. And there is something in my life that I had to discuss with God. A lot of you know that, that Nally and I are foster parents. And we have a six-year-old boy in our home. And uh, side note, I want to extend sincere gratitude to this church because... May and June for us, we got to experience Mother's Day and Father's Day for the first time. And you went out of your way to acknowledge that. You did not forget us. Because as, as those, those of us in this church that I know of who, who struggle with what we're going through with infertility, that's a, that's a hard day. So I'm going to say this, and I'm not, what I'm not doing is saying that Malachi is not mine. Because right now he is every much, every much a part of me as any other biological child I would have. I don't treat him any different. But there is a longing that Nellie and I have to have a biological child. And I had to be honest with myself this week. And then in discussion with Natalie, having to lead her in the same direction. And I finished my morning workout. I'm walking around the neighborhood, and it's peaceful because there's nothing but birds chirping, and nobody's driving around crazy walking in the neighborhood. I'm the only one up. And I'm walking around, and I'm just having this discussion with God. And I know, I know he wants to know the desires of our hearts. And so I'm giving him that. God, this is what I want. But don't let that become my hope. Don't let that become my glory. Because you haven't even promised me that. Let your son Jesus be my hope. Let him be my glory, regardless of the circumstances. 
If something happens today and reunification happens for, for our foster son, praise the Lord because that's what's supposed to happen. Is it going to hurt? Absolutely. But my hope is not set in a six-year-old son and raising him up to be a man. My hope is in Christ. If I go through this with my wife and we never have a child, it's okay. I can have unshakable joy. I can endure all things in Christ because He is my hope. He is my glory. What is it that you're waiting for? What is your mind set on? Will it last? What Paul is encouraging us to do is to set our mind on the things above. To not be distracted from the things of this world. Whether they're good or bad. But what do we do while we wait? I titled this sermon, While We Wait, because that's the question. Waiting is not something we can control. We are waiting. But what do we do while we wait? We prepare. Just like that, that story I told you about me learning how to ski. We prepare. We study scripture. We get to know our Savior. We pursue holiness. We live it out. We fall down a lot. And we get back up and we keep going because we know that at the end of it, there's something worth waiting for. And his name is Jesus. So what do we do while we wait? Paul says in Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That's what we do while we wait. We stand firm. We pursue holiness. We pursue Christ. And all these things in this life that, that we go through, they're difficult. We bring it to Him. I'm, I'm, I'm heading this way. This is where I'm going. I'm going where Jesus is taking me. And if it doesn't point us in that direction, then we should leave it. So I tell you the same thing this morning, church. Whatever it is you're waiting for in this life. Tell, the, tell God the desires of your heart. He wants to know that. He already does. He wants to know that you know that. But then pursue Christ first. And all of those things that you need will be added to you. Not necessarily the things you desire, but the things that you need, He will give you. And one day, we'll all get there to the end. We'll all get there to that mountain peak and see it for all of its glory. Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, returned. And it will be worth it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask you to correct our hearts Father, as we sang this morning, would you lift our eyes to you? Because you are where our help comes from. Lift our eyes from the things of this world and redirect our affections to your son, Jesus, because he alone is worthy of our greatest desires. 
Father, we know that we struggle with this and we battle we battle our selfishness, we battle our desires. There's oftentimes we we need help neglecting our belly so that we would not submit ourselves to that master, but to you. So Father, we know that that you must increase and we must decrease. And God, as long as we wait, we look forward to that glorious day when we will be transformed, where we will be made holy, that we will attain the righteousness that you have given us, and that we will be united with our King. Until then, empower us, enable us, to stand firm. Sanctify us. Make us more and more like your son Jesus. For your glory and your glory alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.